Hey weirdos, I'm Hannah Sainty and welcome to the Your Weird Podcast, the place that talks to creatives, artists and people living their best lives about how they do what they do, why they do what they do and how being a bit weird is a superpower. If robots are taking all our jobs, we better figure out how to harness the one thing that they can't do, be creative. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Your Weird Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Sainty. Thank you so much for joining me. So if you've been listening along to the past episodes, you might know that what my aim is to do with this podcast is to slowly work through all of the resistances that keep you from being your best self. Now, I'm not trying to sound like a motivational quote and get put onto a placard that sits in someone's lounge room and lit up by candles. No, 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 no. What I'm just saying is that sometimes there's just a bunch of crap that goes on in your head that stops you from doing the cool shit you want to do in your life. So I want to find a way to stamp it out. Now, a little while ago, I did a call out on Instagram. It was a very official survey of me asking how and what stops you from doing or sharing the stuff that you like to do. Now, this in-depth research gave me a few options and today's focus is just one of them. It is something called imposter syndrome. Now, I'm sure that a lot of you have heard about it today. It's been getting a lot of media attention of late. People like Emma Watson, that's a Hermione from Harry Potter, has come out saying that she feels it. Uh, Billie Eilish, apparently, uh, Dua Lipa, Tom Hanks has even said that he feels it. Uh, my favourite, though, is actually Tina Fey. She said... The beauty of the imposter syndrome is you vacillate between extreme egomania and a complete feeling of, I'm a fraud, oh God, they're on to me, I'm a fraud. She then went on to talk about how you just sort of revel in the feeling of egomania and then you just try and glide through the feeling of imposter syndrome. That is one way of dealing with it, but there are other ways. Now, I myself am someone who has felt imposter syndrome. Of course I have. It's how and why I've started this podcast is because I'm just as afflicted as the rest of you. And this dirty devil has popped up on my shoulder on numerous occasions, one of which is in comedy. It just pops up and goes, why do you think you're good enough to be on this stage? Who are you? That joke isn't funny. Why did you get booked on this gig? You're going to get found out. They're going to kick you out. You're definitely not going to get paid. You're never going to ask to be back here again. Now, my remedy to that is just crack on and get on with it. But sometimes you can't crack on and get on with it. Sometimes it's really hard to even get on with what it is that you're trying to do. Now, if you don't know what imposter syndrome is, it's quite a new term. The, the term was actually coined in the 1970s. And what it relates to is just the feeling of being a fraud in what you're doing, even though you are successful in what it is that you are aiming to do, or you have proof that you can actually do the craft or the thing that you feel like you're an imposter about. It's basically, in its shortest form, you negging yourself. That is what imposter syndrome is. Now, the only way to get over something like this is you can't just go and read a bunch of books or read a bunch of books of people who have overcome it or just talk about it in your art therapy session. That's not enough. You're going to have tools. So I figured out how to get a tool. That is to go to someone who's an expert. And I found her. She's a phenomenal expert. Her name is Dr. Valerie Young, and she is absolutely the best person to talk to about this because she's the co-founder of a company called the Imposter Syndrome Institute. I think it's in the name. Now, this company started in 1982 with Dr. Valerie Young, and she's also the creator of the Rethinking Imposter Syndrome program. Now, this program has helped over 500,000 people stamp out and release themselves from the shackles of the imposter syndrome. And she's also the author of an award-winning book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. 
why capable people suffer from imposter syndrome and how to thrive in spite of it. Such a good name. I love that. So her research that she's done from 1979 to 1984 has actually covered the intersection between imposter syndrome and diversity, equity and inclusion. So what that means and why I mentioned the dates is because all of that training with the team that she was on, they built the framework of what is today's current diversity and inclusion training. That's so cool. So she's this incredibly inspiring woman. She's worked in a Fortune 200 company. She's been an online coach for 25 years, teaching people how to be their own boss. That means she was doing it before it was cool to be an online coach. And she took the time out to talk to me on this little old podcast. I've got to say, I felt like an imposter when she said yes. And at the start of this interview, when I couldn't get my tech working, but she did. And she was an absolute, just incredible guest. So I spoke to her over Zoom. She was in Massachusetts in USA. I nearly got tongue tied there. And we had a really, really like crack and chat. I think that there's a lot of tools in here that uh, you should hopefully get something out of, or maybe you'll get taught about it and someone in your life who is experiencing it. I know that I got a lot out of it and I'm really excited to hear your feedback. Let me know if you've ever felt imposter syndrome or if you are feeling it, if this is something that like what you take away from this conversation is actually helpful if you put it into practice. And if you have any other resistances, please do let me know. I'm constantly building this list. So sit back, relax, and let's get rid of the imposter syndrome. Valerie, your work is absolutely amazing and outstanding. I've been looking at everything that you've done. I've been watching all the videos that you've done and even like into the history of, you know, uh, back in the 70s when you were doing all of the work, um, which is now developed into diversity training. It's absolutely incredible and outstanding. And I've got to say, I appreciate all of the work that you put in. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's amazing. A long time. I can't believe how fast time flies, but. Yeah. Is it, did you know when you started out that this is the kind of pathway that you were going to take? Did you have an inkling or was it you just discovered it along the way? No, no. I was just, you know, I was sitting in a class. Somebody brought in Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes' original paper that they wrote in 78. This would have been in the early 80s. And um, I just completely identified. So I changed the whole focus of my research and decided to focus more broadly on women's self-limiting attitudes and behaviors, uh, which might lead to imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I was also in graduate school. My my focus was on what you might call kind of oppression awareness training. You know, oh. how do you develop design and deliver effective programs on to raise awareness around racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, ableism, classism, and so on. So so that was already, you know, in my kind of frame of mind at the time. So no, I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was going after the degree and um, I had had really no idea. I turned it into a workshop. In other words, I took my research and I immediately designed a a workshop because my degree is in education and have since learned it's one of the few educational interventions to imposter syndrome. Mostly it's therapy. You know, people go to therapy for it. Absolutely, they do that. And it's really interesting as well. This is why I wanted to talk to you today, because a lot of people talk about imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of the time people can assume that what they're experiencing is imposter syndrome, but there's a lot of really interesting elements to it of whether it is imposter syndrome. And like in your research, you've talked about there being five different types of people and the way they experience it. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Let me just first comment on what you said, because I I think you're absolutely right, Hannah, that it's 
The term has been overused to describe anything from I'm nervous before this audition or this job interview to, you know, somebody wrote an article how they were at a nudist hotel and they had imposter syndrome walking through the lobby nude. I was like, no, that's not imposter syndrome. <laughs> that's you uncomfortable being nude in a hotel lobby. Yeah. Uh, so the five kind of types of imposters, if you will, I don't, that's how it gets described on the internet. But what it really is, is five different orientations that people who feel like imposters have to what it means to be competent. In other words, there's a very strong connection between how I define, engage my competence and imposter syndrome. Because what is common across anybody with imposter feelings is that we hold ourselves to these unrealistic and unsustainably high self-expectations. Most of the academic research focuses exclusively on perfectionism, but that doesn't resonate with everyone. Yeah. I mean, years ago, again, 40 years ago, I started doing an exercise in my workshop called, um, you know, what what's in your rule book? And I would have people fill in the blank. If I was really intelligent, capable, competent, I should, or I'd never right always so i'd always know the answer you know I, i'd always be confident um i should do everything perfectly i'd never fail you know those kinds of things yeah. and i started noticing patterns and the pattern was that even though we all distort what it means to be competent we didn't all do it the same way so there is the perfectionist so obviously they define competence as, as knowing you know as um you know, a flawless, perfect performance each and every time, you know, 99 out of 100 would feel like failure to them. So any minor flaw um, triggers, you know, this feelings of uh, I must not be, you know, fully competent if I can't get it flawless each, each time. But again, not everybody resonates as a perfectionist. So there's the person I call the expert. Doesn't mean they are an expert, doesn't mean they think they're an expert, although they might be but it's really kind of the knowledge version of the perfectionist. So for that person, it's not so much, the issue isn't so much around the quality of their work, although that might still be important to them. But what is more important is the quantity of knowledge and information that they know. And in their mind, they feel like they can never know enough. So you know, there's always one more book to read or one more class to take or one more degree to get you know, before they feel like they're qualified and competent. The third one is the natural genius. And again, I have to I have to quickly say, because there's a lot of misinformation about my work out there. Okay. That doesn't mean this person is a genius or they think they're a genius or the things necessarily always came easily to them. That may be true, but not always. What it, what it really speaks to is this person somehow got it into their mind that if they're really intelligent, capable, competent, this wouldn't be this hard. In other words, the fact that they have to struggle to understand something or master something proves they must be an imposter. They expect to step into a new role, a new job, or you know, acquire a new skill and just pick up, pick it up very, very quickly and master it. And when they don't, they judge themselves. And and it's not because they're lazy. It's because they look at people who are doing amazing things and, and it looks so effortless and easy. So they think they should be able to pick it up effortlessly easy. They don't realize that person spent years getting good at whatever <laughs> it is that they do. Yep. The, the fourth one is the soloist, as it sounds. They expect to perform um, everything on their own. If they got help, mentoring, coaching, that doesn't count. And the superhuman, they uh, it's similar to the perfectionist, but the difference is that they expect themselves to excel you know, at a very high level in multiple roles, either 
in the workplace, very different skill sets and still be outstanding you know, at the top of their game, or they expect themselves to excel in the workplace and also outside of the workplace as a maybe a parent or partner, you know, the home looks great, kids look great, they look great, you know, and to make it all look effortless. So it's around juggling multiple roles. That's amazing. And it really, it covers almost, do you know what I'm going to say? I resonate almost with each of them. Do you find that that happens a lot with people? They kind of take a little bit of each one, but maybe they fall into one a little bit more than the other of those brackets. Yeah, there are definitely definitely people who identify with more than one. I'm actually hoping to create some kind of a, a validated assessment. And I think it's what they're going to find, Hannah, is that people... There are certainly some people that they are just 100% perfectionist, like that's them, right? Um, but I think for many people, it'll fall on a range, yeah. kind of like introvert, extrovert. You know, there are people at both ends of the continuum, and then there's people kind of in different areas in the middle. Yes. Amazing. Um, I am really curious then, so with your research over the years have you found that it affects certain people more than others or certain industries or certain people with like inclinations to the way that they live their lives like you know creatives as opposed to corporates or um obviously you know you did a lot of research around women um and persons of color like those sorts of things have you found that certain types of people tend to be more affected by this yeah absolutely i think there's situational sources there's as you said occupational sources societal sources again women people of color anybody anybody who's on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence or intelligence or kind of expected to represent their entire group they can be more susceptible um students as a group are more susceptible people who work alone and often that's the case for creatives they work by themselves and and people in stem fields medicine but definitely creatives but for a different reason when you're in a creative field, you're being judged by subjective standards, by people whose job title is professional critic. And often, not always, but often your work is public. And so you really, you're only as good as your last painting or your last film or your last book. So you're just constantly having to prove yourself over and over. Absolutely. And that's, so primarily my audience are creative people because I myself, like this is the endeavor I'm upon is trying to um, rebuild myself from stepping away from creativity. And that imposter syndrome is obviously one of the big resistances, whether you're starting out or coming back to it. Um, Yeah. What sorts of things do you think that the personal experience, like the biological factors and the psychological thinking Um, sort of varies like what do you think the experience of imposter syndrome is in a creative well the experience varies you know I think based on on, well first of all it could be people have different levels of intensity somebody can have a kind of a minor you know case if you will not that it's a diagnostic kind of thing but it could be you know something that flares up now and again and as a matter of fact if some if people go to Pauline Clance's website she's one of the psychologists who coined the term I think you can take her uh, her imposter phenomenon scale and you can see based on your answers, is it kind of low, medium or, or intense feelings? So yeah. people who moderate or intense feelings, these feelings often manifest in terms of behaviors. You know, it's not just an interesting self-help topic. Mm-hmm. There are behaviors and those are have consequences. So for example, what how one person might handle their imposter feelings is by I refer to as flying under the radar. They hold back. Mm-hmm. So they don't 
go out there and try to get their work into a gallery. You know, there are, they don't go on auditions or, you know, pursue their creative, um, you know, callings. Um, you know, they, 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 the sense that if I can kind of play small, no one will find out I'm really not talented or I'm an imposter. On the other end of that is people who overwork, overprepare for everything that they do. And, and they're both designed to do the same thing. They're both designed to manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out and to avoid being found out. Mm -hmm. Another behavior might be chronically procrastinating. <laughs> and let me be clear, we all procrastinate. Right? We're, we're hardwired to avoid things that are big, hard, difficult, not very fun. Um, but where it really matters is when it, it threatens to undermine our, you know, major life and work and career goals. Let me explain just how pro procrastination works in terms yes, of imposter syndrome. So let's say, um, you know, I had the opportunity to apply for this amazing grant and I have six months to do it. And um, and it's a very, you know, a vigorous proposal process that I have to go through, right? So let's say it's due June 15th and I start it June 14th, the day before, right? Because I procrastinate. Well, I get it in on time, but I don't get the grant. How procrastination protects me is I can say to myself, well, I'm disappointed, but, but I'm not really surprised because it didn't reflect my best effort. I just did it the last minute. But if the results are good, if I got the grant, I probably wouldn't have felt deserving. I probably would think like, fooled them again. And I really don't deserve this grant and they're going to find out. Other people might, you know, self-sabotage. They it might be alcohol or substance abuse. They might show up late to an important, you know, audition or interview or something like that. It's where they really sabotage their own success. Absolutely amazing. It's funny because we're such complicated animals, aren't we? And we have all these like secret tricks that our brain gives us to get <laughs> us out of anything, hard work or anything that's a little bit scary that might be good for us. Do you find that, um, well, because you talk about like if, if you're not someone who is an imposter syndrome, you know, the other end of the scale would be like a narcissist. So you talk about that sort of like beautiful middle ground being the, uh, the, the humble realist you termed it. So do you find that there's, um, well, firstly, like what do you define a humble realist as? And is there a way that you know, is it one of those things that if you're around some people that are humble realists, can someone who feels imposter syndrome almost learn from that behavior? Or do you think that it would kind of create a little bit more of an imposter syndrome within someone? You know how, like, if you're around someone who's a bit more confident and slowly you can start to just sort of, you know, you should always surround yourself with the smarter people. Same thing with confidence. You can kind of build up your confidence in that way. Do you think that can happen with humble realists and people who are doing well for an imposter? Or is it literally you've got to do all the work on your own and figure it out? No, I think I think role models can be tremendously helpful, but but I think it's important to have awareness of what you're observing and what you're seeing. Because you're absolutely right. You might look at somebody who's very confident and think they must be so much more, you know, talented or qualified or capable than I am. Because we we confuse, we conflate competence and confidence. We think if I was really competent, I'd be confident 24-7. And no, you wouldn't, right? So the great thing about a humble realist, and I describe that as somebody who is genuinely humble. They're not that narcissistic, you know, kind of smartest guy in the room. They are genuinely humble, but they have never experienced imposter feelings. These are people who have a realistic understanding of what it means to be competent, including an appreciation of their limitations, 
right? They, they, they're they aware of their knowledge and skills, but they're also very aware of what they don't know and what they don't do very well. And they're fine with that. You know, they might try to get better or they might say, nope, not my thing. That's somebody else's thing. Let them be good at that. I'm, that's not my gift. They also have a healthy response to failure, uh, mistakes, setbacks, and constructive um, feedback, you know, criticism, let's face it. We call it constructive feedback, but it feels like criticism to us. <laughs> they, they would see, again, if it's constructive, right? They would see it as a gift. They would seek out information for how they could do something better. You know, somebody posted her artwork on this um, like local, it's called, it's kind of neighborhood website kind of thing, this neighborhood thing, anyway. And she said, I'm not looking for any criticism. I only want a new X. She wanted to know whatever it was. And I thought, boy, what a, first of all, how wonderful to put your work out there. And that took a lot of courage, but to come right out and say, I don't want anything negative. I only want to hear positive things. You know, you're missing out on this tremendous opportunity to get some feedback. That's not, that's not the place I go to look for it for a bunch of total st strangers in a, online, right? Uh, but still, I think, you know, we have to learn to um, to seek it out and to find coaches and mentors who are going to tell us where we can improve, not just how wonderful we are. Um, and they also, they understand that sometimes they're scared. Sometimes they have in tremendous self-doubt, but they don't let it stop them. They kind of keep going regardless of how confident they feel. And people with like imposters, often we kind of step back and we say, well, I'll wait until I feel more confident to yeah. do whatever it is. And that's not how it works. That feelings are the last to change. You have to change your thoughts first to start thinking like a humble realist, then change your behaviors, like act like someone who believed those new thoughts. Yeah. even though you probably don't. And over time, the confidence will catch up. Yes, I love that. It's like that old saying, um, your physiology can change your psychology. Like when you feel really sad, just try and smile until you can start to have mm -hmm. it infuse you. That's really amazing. Yeah. So you've you've been doing this program now, which you've taught over 500,000 people to reach hundreds of thousands of people and, and a wide cross-section of anywhere from you know physicists to romance writers right? oh, so. I love that and so it's called the rethinking imposter syndrome program and you've created it yourself yes 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 amazing um and so within that sort of thing obviously you're going to be teaching people how to reframe their thinking are there any sort and are there any um sort of tools and tricks that someone a creative might even be able to just start doing to start heading towards being able to rethink imposter syndrome themselves or even come to you for a little bit of aid yeah absolutely um you know three things one is to normalize imposter syndrome now i, I think it's been over psychologized so i i invite anyone who has imposter feelings when it comes up to kind of just pause for a moment and, and consider the source and go, well, you know, I'm in a creative field. Of course, I feel this way. You know, some of the most talented artists and writers and actors on the planet have had these exact same feelings. So to put it in perspective, but if you're a woman or, you know, there's not a lot of people who look like you or sound like you or whatever the, the circumstances are to kind of put it into perspective. So I'm trying to flip the narrative from how could I feel like an imposter to how could you not? Mm. 
Yeah. I mean, Michelle Obama has talked about her, her imposter syndrome. Why wouldn't she? She's a first generation in her family to go to college. And then she went on to get an advanced degree. You know, she's the first black first lady in, in the U.S. And that pressure to represent, you know, her entire group and so on. So so many reasons why it would make sense that she would have these imposter feelings. So again, to kind of normalize it. The next thing is to, I call it reframing. And it's the same process, but here, like, again, when next time you have an imposter feeling, just hit that pause button and try to become consciously aware of what is the conversation going on in your head right now, and even write it down if, if you can, but then step back and say, how would somebody who is humble, but has never felt like an imposter, how would they be, what would they be thinking in this exact same time in this, you know, in this exact same circumstance, because People who don't feel like imposters, again, those humble realists, they're any more intelligent or capable or competent than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same moment where we feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, what everybody wants is to stop feeling like an imposter, but it's not how it works. You to, the way to stop feeling like an imposter is stop thinking like an imposter. And, and you know, research in the University of Vienna found that people who had low self-compassion for how they spoke to themselves had higher rates of imposter syndrome, which makes sense. The yeah. more self-compassionate you are, the lower imposter feeling. So it's the difference between, you know, your work gets rejected, your manuscript, or the gallery is not interested in your art, or whatever it might be. It's a difference between saying, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I suck, right? I'm terrible. I can't do it. Versus, well, you know, that one down. I'll get them next time. Yeah, yeah, real, just constructive thinking, really. Right. And I think, you know, their loss. And here's the thing. You can be crushingly disappointed. I never want people to think you have to be like happy talk and positive thinking. You can be crushingly disappointed. But as long as you kind of gave it your next shot, I invite people to think about sports. Mm -hmm. We understand with sports that somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. The losing team does not hang up their uniform and go home. The losing team, they might be crying on the bench, but then they go watch the game tape to see, to learn from it. They they get more coaching, they practice, and they say, we'll get them next time. And, and we have to have that same, you know, resolve around setbacks and failure and disappointment. Yes, definitely. Definitely. These are really incredible tools. Thank you so much for sharing them. It's, um, it's funny because you've, obviously you've done so much work in it. I have to ask, have you felt imposter syndrome? And if you have, and maybe you've overcome it, do you ever find it kind of rising its head in the background? Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, the whole reason I started on this path and started, you know, I wrote my, 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 my doctoral research on a similar topic and, and started leading workshops and wrote my book was because I, you know, very much experienced imposter syndrome. I would describe myself as the Beyonce as a matter of fact um but i you know it's funny i've heard myself say this so many times hannah that i'm starting to believe it myself oh yeah so i actually do feel differently i was on um i was doing a webinar for a university in the united states and i got had a similar kind of question and i was telling them how i did this six minute ted talk i was invited by ted headquarters to go to new york only 10 of us got chosen and we had only six minutes, which is tough to do, have a beginning and a middle and end, right? In six minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was all, it was in front of Ted's, other Ted speakers at the same time. It was the most stressful experience of my life. I spent hundreds of hours writing it, 
practicing it, timing it over and over and over. It was very stressful. And to work that hard, I wanted to like crush it, right? You know, you know the feeling when you're like, I nailed it. That's what I wanted to feel. And I did not feel it. I lost my train of thought in the middle of my talk. I Nobody knew it. I kind of stumbled and I started to start talking and I got back on track. But I was really disappointed. So somebody on the webinar, she said, oh, so you felt like an imposter. I said, no, I didn't feel like an imposter. I didn't think I fooled anybody. I didn't uh, discount my accomplishments or, or say, you know, disregard other things that I had done and chalk them up to luck or timing or, you know, personality or those kinds of things. And I, you know, again, I didn't feel like I'd fooled anybody or that I wasn't capable or competent. I was disappointed. Yes. Yep. And that's okay. To me, the goal is not to quote unquote cure imposter syndrome. It's to have kind of information, insight, and tools so that when you have a normal imposter moment, you can talk yourself down more quickly. Mm, beautiful. It's funny that you say that actually, because so I do stand up comedy now. And so often, you know, you get five minute um, you get five minute sets. So you have to have like your beginning, middle and end of, you know, great jokes the whole way through. And, you know, if you get into the nerdy parts of it, they want laughs per minute. And I remember when I was first starting out, like I really had to sort of talk to my imposter syndrome self the whole time I was doing. It. And sometimes in the middle, like you're saying, like in the middle of the set, if I was forgetting some words, I'd immediately just in the background going, see, you don't belong here. What are you doing? Right. And then over time, like I've noticed, because I was like, I can't, it's something I can't not do. Like I'm so obsessed with this craft. And like you're saying, I, I figured out that I was like, well, I'm going to have to say something to myself while it's happening, while I'm on stage until I can figure out how to stop it from happening. And um, though like every now and then, of course, like while still on stage, it still um, sort of pings me. I've definitely found that like you're saying, like I was kind of like, okay, you could either get really sad about it right now or you could go, yep, cool, maybe go home, practice that one again later. But right now you're still here. Let's get on and let's make it worthwhile and, you know, end on a bang. Absolutely. You know, Barbara Streisand, she didn't sing publicly and therefore charge people for 27 years because she forgot the words to a song once. Whoa. And she let that stop her for 27 years. And, and she said, I had no sense of humor about it. And, you know, you're a comedian. That's when you have to, like, have a sense of humor about it. Like, yeah. well, there goes that. If I, you know, because we, we, we've all been there, right? Yes. And yeah. I bet you have audiences, you do the same bit with one audience and they love it. And you do, do the bit with another audience and they're like nothing, right? Oh, all the time. Like, none of you make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I've had that happened to me delivering talks and it's like wait a minute that that joke killed at the university of iowa like what's the, <laughs> what's the matter with you guys i did a five city tour in british columbia and every city the audience was completely different and had a completely different response and that was a good reminder to just like you know what it's not always you yeah yeah that's it that's it and it's funny as well, especially, you know, and this is why I find it so interesting within creative people that like, because you are like all art is subjective. And so you, if you are your art, especially you're subjective. So not everyone's going to like you. And if you want yeah. everyone to kind of be okay with you, then you're probably going to be a little bit beige and a bit boring in all honesty. Well, sure. I mean, you don't like everyone's art. You don't like, you know, none of us like everyone's the same book or the same comedian. And, you know, Chris Rock, obviously very accomplished as a stand-up comic, but before he goes on the late night talk shows, 
he goes out and does a few nights of stand-up to warm up. Mm -hmm. People just assume, oh, you're great at your craft. You're kind of done. No, you're always having to work at it and get better and have bad nights and bad jokes and go, well, that one didn't, didn't land. Let me, you know, retry it the next audience. Do you know what? And I think that's an important, um, an important part of creating as well, because it's going to keep you humble. So if you want to remain a humble realist or get to that point, you need to always remain humble. That's something that myself and other comics, we always talk about that. It's definitely a craft that, you know, because your art is, it's, it's in real time, like you're experiencing mm -hmm. the feedback immediately. You can have those really great gigs and you'll never have the opportunity to get your ego too big because around the corner, there'll be a cheeky bomb with a weird audience. And you're like, oh, okay, I got work to do. So you always have to remain humble, but I think it's good because it means that you're going to, you'll keep working if you've got the right ethic as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been an absolutely incredible, incredible talk. Um, I'm going to put uh, all of your details uh, in the show notes for this episode and also a link to your like website and your videos. But is there anything else you'd like to tell the people out there about imposter syndrome and how to move forward? Yeah, I'd like to say that it's it's not all about you, that when you play small or hold back or burn out from overworking, overpreparing, that they're cost to other people. And that honestly, truly, everybody loses when bright people play small. Beautiful. What an amazing, amazing way to end that. That is so stunning. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for being patient. So um, for everyone listening and watching at home, we had to spend 30 minutes trying to get onto this call because my tech was playing up. And like your, you know, uh, your note earlier on in the interview, I definitely felt the imposter syndrome because I was like, I'm supposed to be an expert. I should have, <laughs> it should be working. And the perfectionism, I was like, it's not worked. I shouldn't be here. So thank you. Hey, for your stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. Uh, it's wonderful. Well, um, thank you so much, Valerie. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for all your work. And I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for getting weird with me. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review. And if you really liked the episode, consider signing up to the Patreon where you can help me help you. You'll get early access, uncut episodes, bonus episodes, and some other cheeky extras that you'll have to check out. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash Hannah Sainty. Now let's be more creative and less strung out. And remember that you're weird because being normal is really boring.